Ready to study God's Word? Come on, get your Bibles out. Find 2 John for me, will you please? 2 John, you can go from the back. Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and you'll be right there. So just start from the back and find your way there. And we're going to begin talking these next few weeks. I'm not exactly sure how far uh, and how long it will go, uh, because as I'm reading through, I'm just getting all sorts of things spinning in my spirit. And so uh, we'll be here at least four or five weeks. And I just wanted to share uh, some with you in what we preachers might call expositional teaching. Now, that may not mean anything to you, and you may not even care. Um, but most of the time, when I instruct you, I usually pick a topic or have a topic I feel like that's impressed on my heart. And, um, you know, just pull from scriptures all throughout the Bible and uh, begin to lay down a precept that you would begin to understand throughout the totality of Scripture so that uh, you could walk in His ways. And that's a perfectly legitimate and appropriate way to teach. But I, I just started thinking the other day, and I believe that was the Lord, that every now and then we just need to dig in and kind of get the whole scoop on a book of the Bible. Because if you don't get the whole book of the Bible, sometimes pulling a verse out or just a few verses here and there, it really doesn't give you the whole scope of, of what the Lord's trying to speak through His Word. And as I was thinking about that, I, you know, I'm, I'm always wanting to be fresh. I'm always wanting to try to, you know, I'm not Mr. Spontaneous, but I do try to at least be relevant and, and hear what God's saying. And for me to do a 52-week series out of Romans just wasn't igniting me. You know, the book of Romans is kind of a long book, and uh, I just figured in 52 weeks, you know, God would surely say something more to me than just the book of Romans. So that wasn't, that wasn't too delightful to me either. So just out of all of that, I started thinking about all these small little books of the Bible. And as I started to study all of that, it just sort of reminded me that these letters were like postcards. And I don't know if you, well, if you're, if you're probably like 30 or younger, postcards probably aren't as significant to you as those who probably are my age and older. Because those of us that are a little bit older, we grew up with postcards. And of course, we also grew up with the U.S. mail. And, and, and in this day and age that we're living in, which has, you know, Twitter and Facebook and email and you can cut and paste. And, you know, I just learned how to cut and paste just, you know, a couple months ago. See, all the young people are laughing, and then all the older people are going, what, I mean, you got your scissors out? No, I'm just, that, we're talking about, you know, email, cut and paste, and those kind of things. We've got Photoshop now, and I don't even, I don't even begin to understand Photoshop. But my era used the U.S. mail, and we used postcards. And, and the postcard has almost gone extinct, because I also found out that you can go to you know, the web, and you can now get web postcards and put it on your email and send it that way. And I, that just takes all the fun out of going through those touristy shops, you know, and working through all those different types of postcards. And, and, and if, if you've never experienced that, you know, there were postcards that had photos of places where you were, maybe notable places, and, 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 and you would get one of these postcards, and you'd keep it for a memento, or maybe you'd send it back to your friends or a family member. Let them know where you were, you got there okay, and, you know, you're having a good time. Some postcards were funny, you know, and, and some postcards were inappropriate. 
but they used to have these racks and racks and racks of, of postcards. And one of the things, I remember this distinctly. And again, I, I was probably just a little kid at the time, but I can remember going with my parents. We would vacation at the Lake of the Ozarks. We had a particular resort we would go to. And at this resort, it was really cool because you had to sort of drive down this, this hill to the resort area, which was, which was next to the lake. And up on the main road, there was one of these souvenir places. And, and for those of you that ever wondered what it was like going to the lake on vacation in the Midwest, it was a lot like going to the beach. There is a Myrtle Beach all over America in all sorts of lakes and towns. And that's what it would remind you of, a lot of touristy things. But the cool part about it was, is that they had this train that was on this cable that would take you up the side of this hill to get you to the tourist shop. And of course, it had all the trinkets, and you, know, you could go up there and you could get, you know, a Coke or get you a shake or a malt or, you know, french fries or whatever. It was just cool. We basically liked going up and down the hill because you got to push this button and this train car would take you up and down the hill. But I remember... I remember just this place being full of postcards, thousands of postcards. And one of the things we were required to do was when we went on vacation, it was like we went to school on vacation. This, but, but we had to get a postcard and we had to send certain postcards back to like our grandparents or friends or whatever the case may be. That was almost expected. Now, do some of you remember that? I'm not, I'm not looking at the young ones. Some of you older ones remember that. I see some of you nodding. Like you knew you had better send a postcard back. Especially if you went somewhere really cool, you better send back a postcard. And so there's thousands of postcards. You pick out a few postcards. You always took a few stamps that, uh, you know, you could send with the postcard. And um, you tell your family, you tell your friends you're all right, you're having a good time, wish you were here. And you didn't really. You were glad they weren't there with you. But you got to your destination. Maybe you could scratch in any last minute, I mean, but you couldn't scratch in much because a postcard wouldn't but about three by five or somewhere in there, four by six maybe. But in our era, and this is really hard for me to say in our era, back when I was young, it, it, was, it was sort of fun to send and fun to receive. In fact, you just kind of planned on it. Now, why, why postcards from God? Well, there are these small books, really they're letters, that uh, a couple of the apostles sent off to churches that, in my opinion, qualify as a postcard. They're short letters, short notes, that oftentimes, I think, get overlooked because of really the information that we have in some of these longer, more familiar books. Now, they're called epistles. Everyone understands that when you get into the New Testament, it's called an epistle. An epistle is not the wife of an apostle, all right? An epistle. An epistle is just a fancy word for letter. You get a letter. And so they'd write these letters, short letters, postcards to these churches in order to say certain things. You may ask, well, well, why did they write these short ones when obviously there's a few longer ones there? Well, you know, truth of the matter is that ink... And, and what they called papyrus, there was no paper in those days. You couldn't go down, you know, to the CVS or Walgreens. You know, there in Jerusalem or wherever you were, Smyrna, Corinth, Thessalonica. You know, you couldn't go down to the Walgreens and get you a bunch of paper 
and write you off a letter and stick it in the mailbox. It's just not how it worked in those days. They did have they did have ink. They had these these skins, so to speak, that were called papyrus. But but this stuff was not cheap. It was not easy to get a hold of. In fact, to be candid with you, just few people knew how to read in those days. Most communication transferred from one another mouth to mouth, no postal service. The couriers that they did have in those days that you would give to, you had to trust that they would get that to where it was supposed to go. And, and then you take into account robbers and thieves and all the other issues to somehow uh, uh, transact postal service in the first century was not as easy as you might think it to be. However, when it happened, and when they could even get little bits of this papyrus, if, if a short note were possible, oftentimes they would just write off this postcard and send it off to a church in order to tell them certain things they might need to know. Now, keeping all of that in mind, can you begin to understand that if all you had were, were minimal tools, all you had were a little piece of papyri. You were going to write something to a church in order to give them some instructions. Could we at least deduce from that that whatever you penned on that piece of papyrus, it was going to be fairly important? I mean, I mean, you just you just couldn't you, you just couldn't go on and on and on. You had you had to get to the bottom line. You had to get to what you wanted to say and whatever it is you needed to say. It had to be important. And uh, people who received that would receive it as such. Now, we're going to talk about these little postcards. I want you to somehow keep that mentality through these coming weeks. It's not that what God said through Paul in the book of Romans or Galatians or Ephesians. It's not what the longer letters that he wrote might not be just as much important. Certainly, they're just as much inspired. But I want you just to get a sense of that if you're writing a postcard... That whatever you're saying on that thing could almost be underlined and emphasized in such a way that you better hear what's being said. And, and, and I just think there's some precepts that begin to leap out of here that will really help us a lot. And so we're going to start with our first postcard in 2 John. Uh, there's only one chapter, so turn to chapter 1. And, and let me just read a few things here. It's an interesting letter. It's, it's a quick read. Listen carefully. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Here we go. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine 
do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I do not wish to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. And I just entitled this book and what I want to share with you today, Discerning Who You Receive From. All right, discerning who you receive from. Now bear with me as I just kind of walk through some things here. Who, who is John writing to here? Who's this postcard sent to? Well, as you begin to look at it, you'll begin to see that in all likelihood there was this group of believers that he wanted to send some instruction to. It could have been a fully formed church. Some have suggested that because he uses the term lady that it could have even been a well-known hospitable Christian woman that perhaps needed some guidance with her children. Some have suggested that perhaps it was a woman pastor. Um, I, as you know, there's, there's certainly no problem in my mind or heart with regards to the issue of women in ministry. Uh, I, uh, I have one that I'm married to who I believe is fully vested by God and has a call in her own right. Now, this is, this is the great thing. I, I kind of get the best of both worlds. I've, I've got a, a wife who's not only called to the ministry, who compliments me and is a helpmate to me in that regard, but in the same way I am called to the ministry, she is called into the ministry. And God does do that. He calls women into the ministry. In fact, thank God for the women who've responded to that, because I'll guarantee you about half the churches in America would have shut down a long time ago had it not been for the women. Now, I ought to be preaching to the men on this one. Come on, man. We need to arise. I believe that, that God loves for men to arise and to provide that leadership. But I'll just share this with the guys. He ain't, he ain't going to stop because you do. All right? He isn't going to stop. And so, and so certainly this, this could have been the case. Although as I just began to look at it, I believe that John was probably... Uh, being a little bit more uh, clandestine or figurative in who he was writing to and, and, and probably not wanting it to be confiscated or something like that. But, but I think perhaps he was writing to a church and uh, perhaps he was writing to it figuratively because we all know that all through the scripture, the church is referred to in, in feminine terms, the church, the bride, he being the husbandman, we being the bride. And so God relates to his church in more of the feminine fashion. And as you'll also realize, John tended to have a streak of the figurative in him as he began to write the book of the Revelation, because as you get through the Revelation, you'll begin to see that there's a lot of, of language and, and allegory in there that has to be interpreted. And, and so I think personally, he's just writing to a church. Her children are probably her members. And even at the end of this passage in verse 13, where it says that your elect sister uh, greets you as well, the children of your elect sister, I believe in all of this, he's He's trying to say there's a church over here that's bringing greetings to you and just letting you know we know where you're at, we know what's going on, and uh, I'm just wanting to speak to you this way. Now, there's little doubt that a church, just like our church, has a certain amount of organization that accompanies it. I mean, we listen to life groups, and my wife shared with you life groups today, and, and uh, we're really hoping and praying that everybody that's here and those that weren't here to hear it We'll hear it and we'll participate in it. Because truth of the matter is, is that we can provide certain structure or we could provide certain organization, but the church was meant to be organic in nature 
And it was meant to be more like a family than it was like Walmart. That's why all through the scripture you will find as writing is taking place and as interaction is happening, that people are referred to as brother and sister. You'll find in the scripture that Paul will remind them that they have spiritual fathers. He says you have 10,000 teachers, but you don't have many fathers. The Bible tells us that they're mothers in Israel. And literally what that phrase means is that there are, there are spiritual women who I believe probably have some experience and maybe even some age, nothing wrong with that, but they literally become mothers, spiritual mothers amongst the people. You've heard some of this from us as we've shared this with you. You know, we are, we are the pastors and we've found this church and we provide structure and we have all the important organization that a church must have. We have a 501c3. I filled out all the forms you have to fill out. Uh, I don't. I used to have to send out all these forms. Now, praise God, I have Maria, who now sends out all these forms to the IRS. And she gets to talk to the IRS usually about once a month about something. And so we have to do all of these sorts of things, organization, structure, all these kinds of things that we have to do in order to be an entity. But I want to underscore this, and I'm spending time with it, because we were never meant just to be a club. We were meant to be a family. Can I just share this with you? I, this isn't even in my notes. But in some ways, I have closer relationships to those I go to church with than I do my own natural family. You say, why would that be? It's because I've been born again as a new creature. I wasn't the same person I was when I came out of the womb. Now, am I still Kevin? Do I still have DNA? Am I still genetically built the same way? Yes. But truth of the matter is my spirit is totally different than it was the day I was physically born. I was born again. When one is born again, Scripture tells us that you become a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So literally, when I received Christ... I was birthed into a new family, the family of God. Now, listen to me for just a moment, because this is almost anathema in the South. This will almost get you run out of town. Because you can talk about anything, Pastor, just you don't talk about my family. My family's my family's my family. Come on, let's just be let's just get honest in the South. You've got the. The daughters of the revolution and the sons of the confederacy. I'm telling you, family runs deep around here. You don't mess with my flag. You don't mess with my heritage. Hey, I'm, I'm not going to let my African friends get off the hook. You, I know how it works in your churches, too. Family. There are some people right now can't go along with God because their family has been in a church for centuries. Family. Well, what would my mom say? What would my dad say? What would my uncle say? What would my weird aunt say? What would, what would people say? This is family. This is family. Can I just share this with you? Jesus said this. Jesus said, don't think I've come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Jesus said, I'm quoting Jesus. He said that he'd drop a sword in the middle of our relationships. Now, I believe family is important. Don't misunderstand. I think family is critically important. But if I am left with a choice between my earthly family and my relationship with God, that's a no-brainer. My relationship with God takes precedence over everything else. 
And that's why at times it seems as if I have more family relationships with the family of God than I do even with my own natural family. Now, again, it doesn't mean I don't honor. I don't interact. It doesn't mean that I'm not respectful. It doesn't mean any of those things. But this is a good place to stop for just a moment and just simply say that when you're birthed, when you're born again and you come into a new relationship with God, every relationship suddenly is on the altar. Everything changes. I didn't even mean to preach this. I'm just going to go. Is it okay if I just go with God for just a moment here? Come on now. Every relationship in your life changes. The moment you're birthed into the family of God, the kingdom of God, everything, everything changes. And, and truth be told, everything changes for the good. Now, I'm just going to share this again. God, listen, ladies, gentlemen, God wants, God wants your marriage relationship to work. He's for marriages. You know, he's for covenant, right? God's not for divorce. He doesn't like divorce. I know people get divorced. There are various reasons people get divorced. There are even biblical reasons for divorce. And so I understand it happens. I understand that for some of you it happened, and maybe you look back and wish it didn't happen, or maybe you could have done some things different. We all wish we could go back and do a thousand things different. So I'm going to say this. However you've come to this moment, you've got to play the hand that was dealt. I can't go back and fix what you did way long ago. It's done. It's over. Right now is what we've got to deal with. Now, listen to me carefully. We're de- so, so everybody in the room, we're dealing with a clean slate. Let's just say for the sake of argument, we got a clean slate. We're dealing with where we're at in our marriage relationship. It's the choices we made. It's where we're at. The past is forgiven. I'm, I'm going to start doing it right from this moment forward. Listen to me. God is not for divorce. So another one, in other words, you're going to love the one you're with. Even when you don't feel like it, I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But there are days I wake up and my wife wakes up and we look at each other and I, that love and feeling has left the building. But we're coming around to 30 years. If it was about feeling, we'd have made it about two weeks. Some days you don't feel like it. So how do you get through it? I made a commitment. I made a covenant. My covenant to God is stronger than even my feelings. See, a lot of you think God is your feelings. Oh, this is good. Somebody take notes on me right now. I just tell you right, right. No joke. You get a feeling and you think it's God. Whatever feeling comes your way must be God. No, no. This is God. And sometimes... Sometimes it'll agree with your feelings, and sometimes it won't. And when it doesn't, this trumps everything. So I'm going to get back to this because I'm talking about how we should be a family. Listen to me real carefully. God is for marriage. He wants your marriage to survive. He wants your marriage to thrive. He doesn't want it just to be duty. He wants you to delight in it. He wants all of those things. And if both parties choose to love God and serve him and walk with him obediently, God will forge that thing like that. But listen to me. For whatever reason, we can't always control what the other partner chooses. Now, I'm just going to use my wife and I. Now, I know this will never happen. I won't say never, but it's highly unlikely this will ever happen. Let's just say, let's just say I get a brain cramp. And I just say, you know what? This pastor thing, has, has we've run the course. I've done my time. I've done it. I'm, I'm doing my own thing. I'm not saying I messed around on you because I know I'll die if I do that. So, but, but, but I'm just saying I'm done. I'm done with 
I'm just done with this pastor gig. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to do this Christianity thing anymore. I'm done with it. Now listen to me very carefully. She's made a covenant. If I've not, if I've not given her a reason to break that covenant, then you know what? She's required to stick with me. But hear me now. Hear me now. She's not required to follow me. Are you listening to me? I have watched women through the years follow their husbands off cliffs spiritually. Because they say, the Bible says that I'm to submit to my husband. Yeah, the Bible says that you're to submit to your husband as unto the Lord. Read the rest of the verse. The reason the rest of that verse was put in there is because Paul knew. Paul knew that there were going to be men who got brain cramps. And there were going to be women who are going to sit here and say, he's in rebellion. What am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this? I'm telling you, when it, there ever, God, the, your relationship with God trumps everything. Everything. You say, well, how do you do that? You say, honey, I love you. I'll cook your dinner. I'll wash your clothes. I'll do what I can. I'll love you. I'll do whatever I can. But I'm just telling you, if you're going into sin, that's where it stops. I must obey God, Acts 5.29, rather than men. See, I understand authority. Believe me, we teach authority here. We get authority. I understand that you submit to authority when you don't agree with them with regards to opinion. That even if it's a, 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 a style issue or it's just a, a difference of opinion, you submit to authority. But if you're being led into sin, you must obey God rather than man. Now, I love my parents. I love my, I, I love my folks. I'm going to tell you something. When, when I first was born again, Nobody was going to get me out of bed and drag my sorry carcass to church. As far as they were concerned, I could, I could backslide and they could care less. There were numerous vacations where I was told that if you were a part of this family, you would go with us and you would do, if you're a part of this family. And I remember saying, I'll be more than happy to go and I'll be with you on these select days, but I am going to be with the family of God in the house of God. I understand in the South, everybody looks at me like I've lost my mind. But our problem is, is our families have become idols. Our kids have become idols. Whatever we do to facilitate little Johnny and little, little Julie, and we'll just facilitate it. Why don't we just worship them sometimes? Because that's what we do. Now, Hear me again. I'm going to go on vacation just like you're going to go on vacation. I'm going to do some special things just like you're going to do some special things. But I, I am not going to be led into sin. Or vice versa. If Tracy gets a brain cramp, she does her thing. I'll look at her and say, honey, I love you. I'm with you. But I'm just telling you, I am not backing up on God. Because when we stand before the Lord, I get to stand there all by myself. And I can't look and say, well, Lord, do, do you know who I'm married to? And she isn't going to be able to say, well, Lord, did you see the knucklehead that I thought you led me to marry? Which, by the way, I do want to have a discussion with you on that one. Because I felt like you were leading. And the Lord's going to say, that feeling wasn't me. But there you are. And he's going to look at you and say, I'm, not I'm talking about serving me. See, we were meant to be a family. We were meant to do life together. Amen. That wasn't in my notes. I don't even know where to go from here. See, we don't understand covenant. Covenant. 
Covenant, covenant is, is commitment that's deeper than contract. Covenant is deeper than just what meets my needs. In fact, the word love, which we'll talk about here in just a minute, love cannot be understood unless it's understood in the concept of covenant. See, today, in the American church today, we're about convenience, right? There's no sense of loyalty. There's, there's no sense of stick to we, 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 It's all about convenience, consumerism, and what meets my need. If this meets my need, then I'm in it. This minute it ceases to meet my need, see you later. There's no sense of covenant. We do that in our relationships, our marriages. We say to ourselves, as long as I keep getting what I want, I'll be in this marriage. But as soon as I don't get what I want, then what happens is I just simply say to everybody, we grew apart. Or we just lost. We just fell out of love. Like you somehow tripped into it to begin with. Covenant, covenant says, I'm here. I'm with you. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others, cleaving unto only you for as long as we both shall live. That's forever. You say, well, what happens if I don't like it along the way? Tough. I don't know how else to say that. I don't want that to be that way for you. Can I just share this? And my wife, we've heard us testify. There were a few years, probably between year seven and, and, and 15. There were some tough years in there. 20, okay, maybe 20. I mean, there's some, that's, there were some tough years. A lot of it was me. Maybe most of it was me. I hate to say that as a man because we don't think it's ever us. But between 7 and 20, there was, and, and I can't tell you how many times your flesh is going, I, I, I went out somehow, is there some way out, is there some way out, what I don't feel, I don't get, I don't want to, and you know, and, and there comes a moment that you're either in covenant or not. And unfortunately, there probably were days there was duty, honey, I'm sorry, I repent. But I'm telling you something, from year 20 to now year 30, you should have my life. It's been great. It's been a delight. I can't imagine life without you. <laughs> now, there may have been moments you... <laughs> but but I, I, you, you say, well, how did you... People look at me and say, how did you get to the place where you just... You love and you can't imagine. You know what? It was 20 years of practicing a covenant. A covenant has that kind of power. But we don't give covenant that much time. We just simply are built on convenience. If it's convenient... I was reading on the front page of my, my website, server popped up, and you know, I just saw some NBA player is marrying one of those Kardashian girls. I thought to my, and, and the whole story was this. They went to the attorney's office to work on their prenup. Can I just say, I don't even have a word of knowledge. That thing isn't going to last a year. What, what, what a way to start a covenant, prenup it. You know what a prenup is? A prenup is, it says, I know we're not going to make it. So we're going to make sure we figure it all out before we even get there. I, 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 you know, it's just amazing to me. There's no sense of covenant. There's no sense of covenant in the life of the church either. Now, again, that's not to say that there aren't moments. Because I understand church life is not exactly like married life. I get that. I understand you. You follow the leadership of the Lord. There are days that... That you're uh, being led of the Lord and, and, and God may lead you to a certain place and there are certain seasons. And I respect that. 
But I had to come to a place as a pastor. Do you understand? There are denominational systems where pastors stay about four to seven years, maybe. You know, the average lifespan of a uh, youth pastor, which, praise God, Pastor Noah has broken this record, so praise God. But, but it's like 12 months. That's the average day of a youth pastor. Well, you know why? It's because there's no covenant on either end. There's no covenant in church people. There's no covenant on the ed and the pastors either at times. And I had to come to the place as a pastor, especially when we were going through all of our challenges almost a decade ago. If you can believe, it's been almost 10 years. And when we were going through all of those challenges and we were working through all of that, and I looked at people. Now, I'm not talking about organizationally. I'm talking about people. Some of you looking you in the eye and knowing that a relationship had been forged. And something inside of me said, can you just walk away from that? At what point is covenant important to you as a pastor? It's not just about your future. And it's not just about what you want and where you want to be and your career and your ministry. At what point is covenant important to you? At what point do you say to yourself, I'm going to dig in. I'm going to stay for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in a mall or in my own building, whether I have $5,000 or whether I get $5 million in annual church budget. I, it doesn't matter anymore. Is there any covenant in the earth anymore? That's what family is. Family has some sense of covenant. Now, even in your earthly family, you know that kids grow up and they leave the household, they get married, and, and there are natural growth processes. So I'm not twisting this into something weird or controlling. I'm just simply asking you to ask yourself, at what point do you finally ask the question, is this covenant or are you simply going to move through your feelings all the time? I feel led. I feel moved. Well, some days I'm just going to tell you, I don't feel like coming to church. As much as I like you. There are days I just don't want to be here. I want to just call someone up and say, I'm, I'm gone. But is there covenant? Is there a covenant? This is what Second John is beginning to deal with in the life of the church. Even though I've blown my notes and Jerry's back there, God bless him, week after week, looking at my script and my notes going, where is Pastor. Jerry, God bless you. He's back there and he's just waving. He's just, I don't know. But Jerry's in covenant with me. Hallelujah. See, this isn't, this isn't, I go to Walmart and they build a new department store over here. And, and because they cut the prices, I just go here. Now, there's a place for that in capitalism. And if you're, you know, an Adam Clark economist and you understand, well, that you can do, but that's not covenant because church isn't Walmart. Church isn't Walmart. Exactly. It's koinonia. It's fellowship. It's doing life together. In, in our busy schedules, it's finding way to do life together. It's finding way. Why is that? It supports us. There's a structure to it. There's a help to it. There's an edification to it. People go to church and they check it off their list and they say they've done their duty to God. Well, that's wonderful. And that's one of the reasons we're here is to worship God. But another reason we're here, according to Hebrews 10.25, is that we mutually encourage one another 
all the more as we see the day appearing. Do we see the day appearing? Oh, you better know it. And there's something about hanging around with those of like faith who are in the family. They get me. You get me. Most of my family tree has yet to get me. They think I'm bizarre. Can you imagine that? They think I've lost my mind. They think I'm still going through this, this spiritual phase. That one day I'll get over. It's been 33 years. I hadn't gotten over it yet. And I don't plan on getting over it anytime soon. So well, what do you do with that? They live with it. Because God is first. Now this gets back to what love means. That's what he's going to talk about here. I'm sorry I've blown this, Jerry. I'm under what's the problem. If you want to know where I'm going to go to, I just skipped a bunch. I'm under what's the problem. So, did something happen that I missed? Like a whole bunch of things. What's the problem? Love. Look what it says here. It says that he found some walking in truth. You know what that means? Some walk in truth, which means some aren't. So you're scholars. But this is what he says. He says, love one another. That's what he says in verse 5. And then in verse 6, he defines it. He says, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. We walk according to his commandments. So he defines love. Love isn't just, love isn't just what you say. Sometimes it is what you do. See, I can say to my wife, I love her. But if there's no action at some point, then that's meaningless, right? Now, now this isn't an instruction in love language and all the rest, but I'm, I want to tell you something that you can't say you love God and you can't say that he means everything to you and then the things that are important to him aren't important to you. See, something's not connecting there. This is America. American Christianity, 80%. If you ask, if you ask Oprah, you love the Lord. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm sure you get a yes. That's why you never use that question with people. Never ask people the question, do you love the Lord? Because you'll always get a yes. What are they going to say? No. I mean, not unless they're just a pagan, unless they're, you know, cutting off goat's heads in the backyard. And I mean, everybody, they say, yes, I love the Lord. But here's the key. Loving means that you you love and you do what God loves and wants to be done. Now, apparently, the problem was some got it, some didn't get it. And, and there was some misunderstanding. Now, now, hear this. Number one, some had misunderstood what love really meant. And that's what we've done in our modern day church life experience. We have, we have misunderstood what love means. We'll use love for everything. We love, we love the Lord. We love our spouse. We love our children. We love our car. I love my dog. I love pizza. I love, I love going, I love going out on the boat. I love golf. You understand every one of those I love, right? And you all understand I use the very same word, love. There are people who have misunderstood and do not get what love means. We use love just to signify I have an endearing feeling. I love. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. 
Oh, I love that show. Oh, yeah, I love that store. I love these shoes. I love, you know, love, 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 love. Until finally it has become so familiarized that it's meaningless. So what happens is, is that each of us, because we live in an era where everyone defines their terms the way they see fit, we no longer live under under a consistent interpretation of our vocabulary. That's why you can get politicians who will say what we think is the right words, but they don't mean what we think they mean. That's why, that's why we interact with each other and people say certain words. That's why, that's why even in relationships you'll hear guys use the term to their potential uh, 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 wife or woman or shack up or whatever it is there. I love you. Well, what does that mean? It means, it means I want to go have sex. That's how they define love. And when that no longer exists, then they don't love you anymore. Love. We've, 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 we've messed up what love means. There's a show on television which is called Intervention. And basically, it's the show of people who are in certain addictions. And the day has come when the family says, we've gone as far as we can go, and, and we're going to have this intervention, and we're going to get you some help. And what happens is everybody... Everybody comes, and, and basically they corral them and bring them to this crisis moment until they finally go to some rehab and get some help. Now, as we watch this as viewers, as we watch this as viewers, and as this family gathers around this person to speak into their life, it is easy for us to begin to say they are doing this because they love them. They want the best for them. They don't want them destroyed. They don't want them hurt or harmed. We can see that because we're in our right mind. And, and even at very superficial levels, we get why they're, why they're doing this is because there's been such destruction that has gone on. But let's stop for just a minute call time out. What is that person who's in the middle thinking? They're thinking, nobody loves me. Nobody wants what I want. In, in fact, for them, they have defined love as enable me. Support me in my dysfunction. Affirm me in my craziness. And what happens is, is that when they find, when they, when people don't do what you want them to do, they say, you're not loving anymore. When you're not giving me what I want, you're not loving anymore. Folks, we have so warped the concept of love, you know, to the place where, where we're being enabled in our dysfunctions because we think that's love. It's how that works. How many of you know in church life it works that way? People, I have them come to the door all the time and they're wanting something from me. Now listen, they don't want to connect to a local church. They don't go to any church, they, but they want money from me. They want something from me. They have no intention of coming to church. They don't want an answer to their problem. They don't want to be pulled out of their hole. They just, they want something from me. And I look at them and I say, I'm not going to do it. And many times I'll get this. What kind of Christian are you? I mean, they'll say it. And I'm sure they've said it in certain venues and they've watched a pastor or somebody just scramble and go, Ooh, well, let me, let me see, let me see. You know what I say? I'll look and say, I'm the kind that loves you. I love you so much that I'm not going to stuff a Big Mac in your mouth just to get you off my doorstep. I love you enough to tell you that if you don't start changing your life, you're going to be here a decade from now. I remember one old boy was at the door. And, and the Lord, I, I try to be sensitive of the Lord. I'm not just this hard old cuss that, you know, you know, when people come by, it's just, no, I'm not giving you anything. Bless God, go get it yourself. 
I'm not, I, I, you know, you try to be led of the Lord and do what's right. And, and this guy, he was in a place, and so I said, I'm going to do something for him. And um, so I went and got it, just had a little cash, just very little cash. We don't keep any cash here. And we partner, by the way, with Tri-County. So a lot of uh, that can be facilitated there. But I felt this one occasion, I felt quickened to the Lord. And so I held this. And it's, and I, was, I was holding it to him, and he, he could see, you know, he had, the money was there. I was fixing to give it to him. And I said, listen, before I give this to you, I just, I just want to share uh, something with you that, you know, for life to be different. And I hardly had gotten going. Now, listen, he, he was needing money from me. Where he, This is what he did. He went. Now, 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 he did that. And I said, I forget his name. Just, I don't want to use somebody's name here. I mean, but I, I called him by name. I said, listen, that's why you're at where you're at right there my friend you have a guy like me ready to put money in your hand and you roll your eyes at him because you don't want to hear i said if if you could have gotten to where you needed to be you wouldn't be needing this uh seven bucks i'm fixing to put into your hands if you got life all together so well why do you need my seven dollars the point is you don't have ears to hear now and he and the whole time i know he's looking at me he's seething you could see him manifesting he wasn't moonwalking, but he was just manifesting. Just, if we had a little music, though, he probably could have. Anyway, point I'm, I'm getting off the beaten path here. But the whole time, I'm sure he's saying, this guy doesn't love me. And truth be told, I'm the only one he probably met that day that loved him. See, that's the question in your life, all of our lives. That's, you see, to some extent, that's what family is supposed to be. When no one else has the guts to tell you what needs to be said, family can do it. Why can family do that? It's because blood is thicker than anything else. And we've got the blood of Jesus rolling in our veins. There ought to come a place where a pastor can look at his people and say, this is the truth. This is the way. Maybe it makes you crawl a little bit, but I'm not doing it just to make life hard for you. I'm trying to get you to a destiny. Trying to get you into a land. I'm trying to get you to your purpose. And you're too worried about how you feel. And so there was this great misunderstanding that was going on about love. And the problem was, is there was another group, point two, that were manipulating it. Now, I'm going to have to get through this real quick because I'm looking at here. I've done preaching my way out of time. But this is why you've got to discern who's around you. Because there are people that come to church life. Many people have legitimate problems, legitimate challenges, and they want legitimate help. But there are many people who know that you get around a bunch of Christians and you can work them. You can work them for money. You can work them for just about anything. They'll work the place. Why? It's because most of us in this room have had our understandings of love twisted to where we think if we don't do what they want us to do instantly, that somehow we're not being loving. And that's a lie. That's a lie. But for most of the church... They, they, they are easily manipulated. They are so gullible because we've been untrained and untaught as to what true love is. True love, true love isn't me just facilitating your mess. True love is me looking at you saying, I can help you out of your mess if you're willing to put some energy, if you're willing to put some spirituality, if you're willing to listen. 
be trainable, be teachable. We can, we can, we can begin to get, I, I don't just have to pay your light bill. I can get you to the place where you could actually get some money in your savings. If you'll listen, if you'll listen. The church that John was writing to was getting manipulated. Not only were they being manipulated by people who were coming in, they were getting manipulated by false teachers and false preachers. And I'm sure they had them in those days that, you know, if you give me five days of bread, God will multiply it back. Give you 50 loaves back somehow, some way. And he's looking at them and said they're deceivers. Actual word for deceiver is where you get the word vagabond from. You know what a vagabond is? It's someone who can't plant. Someone who refuses to root themselves in any one location. That's what the word deceiver literally means, vagabond. You've heard me teach this before. I've told you that, that the Bible tells us in Psalm 1, it says it's the tree that's planted by the waters that flourishes. It says that he who is planted in the house of the Lord will flourish in the courts of his God. But these were not planters. These were vagabonds. They were, I call it tumbleweed. You know, you know why a tree planted by a river is green? And do you know why a tumbleweed is dry and brittle? You, under, you understand why those two things exist like they do? One is planted and one just blows with every breeze. There's a lot of tumbleweed in the American church. And the tumbleweed just wants enough to get to the next location. Tumbleweed just wants a little bit more to get to whatever it is. Just one more day, one more fix, one more moment, one more light bill, one more. If I could just get through this month. if I, we, we have got to get to the place, folks, where we're not manipulated by tumbleweed. But we begin to say to folks, I t here, the answer is you got to get planted. you got to get planted. You, you know why everybody's looking at government to get their needs met now instead of the church? I can tell you why. It's because when you get your needs met by the government, you don't have to commit to anything except to show up when the building opens and sign the paper and then get your check. You can keep popping out the babies. You can keep doing the same things that got you in trouble in the first place. And we just as a government will keep writing checks to people. You come to church and we'll look you in the eye and say, we'll help you through. And we may even help you pay a bill or two. But we're going to get you planted in the house of our God. Because there comes a place when it's not about paying your next bill. It's about you rising up. And making a way in God for yourself. But there were people that were plaguing the church, manipulating the church, twisting the church. Until finally, John said, these are the three things that you need to look for and we'll be done. I'm going to just give you these three things, bang, 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 and I'm done. Three things that you need to look for as you just sort of discern all of this. The solution. Number one, you've got to examine their beliefs about Jesus. That's what he said here in verse 7. He says, many deceivers, vagabonds, have gone into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. The reason this was important, I can't get into all the Gnostic heresy that was going on in that time. The bottom line is this. What have you done with Jesus? Are you serving him? I don't, you say you love the Lord. Wonderful. Are you serving him? Are you walking with him? Where are you connected? Who is your pastor? You know, what are you doing weekly, consistently? 
with Him in order to move forward. You got to examine people's belief in Jesus. I don't. I, I'm not taking this. Just I, you know, I love the Lord. I'm a spiritual person. Well, you know, for all I know, your God is your tree, and your spirituality is sitting out under it on a shady afternoon. I don't know. But you got examined. He said you got to examine their belief in Jesus. Number two, he says, look to yourselves. I think I put on the screen. Quit being gullible and naive. Literally, look to yourself means wake up. Wake up. You don't have to be cynical, but don't be gullible. Be open to the Lord as you're receiving people into your life. But ask yourself, who's influencing me here? Am I, am I the thermometer? Am I reflecting what's around me? Or am I the thermostat? Am I the one setting the temperature? And we are called to set the temperature. You and I are called to bring solutions and answers. We're not called to reflect anything else but Him. And, and we need to quit being naive and gullible with uh, all that goes on in the American church today. And finally, number three, evaluate their walk in light of their talk. Evaluate their walk in light of their talk. Are they faithful? Are they connected? I was all over the map this morning, but I've just, I haven't done this in a long time. Just sort of been moved by the moved by the wind. All of this lays the foundation. This is what's cool. It lays the foundation for next week. Because in 3 John, verse 2, this is what he will write in another postcard. He'll say these words. He said, Beloved, I pray that in all things you may prosper, even as your soul prospers. You will never prosper until you get the first postcard down. Now, I'm gonna go, we'll go to postcard 2 next week, and we're going to talk about prosperity and some of you in here are called to be handlers of great finance. You say, I don't have two nickels to rub together right now, Pastor. I'm telling you, that can change instantly. God is calling people to handle great sums of money and, and things that can be facilitated into his kingdom. But we aren't going to get that until we understand the concepts here of what it means to really truly walk in love. Listen, if you love the Lord, then you will walk in his ways. If you love the Lord, it won't bother you if I'm up your tree and shaking it. If you love the Lord and I'm in your grill and I'm talking about you and it's like I put a little tap on your phone and I got, I got you, you won't be mad at me. That's, that's the Lord saying, I'm going to let you love me even more by getting this straight in your life. Amen? Come on, don't lie and say you love the Lord and then go do exactly the opposite. Don't say you love the Lord and don't do what he asks. And we can't say that we love the brethren until we understand that it first starts with our covenant love here. And then we can, and, and can I just say this? And there will be people who will take what I just said and they'll hear that and they'll try to manipulate your heart. Because they'll know you are seeking to do what's right and they can take it to their advantage. And that's what John said. He said, don't let them do it. Don't let them do it. Don't let him do it. Stand with me, will you? I'm just going to stop. Amen.